everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and this is the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. Today, on December 20th, I want to present to you the year in review for 2021. Now, this year was filled with both challenges and encouraging signs of progress. Of course, the world continued to cope with the many hardships associated with the COVID-19 pandemic, which have negatively impacted the community, which includes scientists who study autism. Families and individuals continue to show individualized and specialized needs, specifically those from racially and ethnically diverse communities, including females and girls, and we continue to understand the specific needs of those groups. For example, the close of the year saw a publication of a report by the Lancet Commission, which formally introduced the concept of profound autism, representing individuals with different support needs. New CDC data released in December also showed that autism rates are rising while age of diagnosis is decreasing. While this review is not a comprehensive summary of every single autism discovery this year, we summarize many significant autism discoveries and related news of the past year. On December 6th, The Lancet, which is a journal, published an extensive report from a global team of autism researchers and stakeholders that was two years in the making. The report, titled The Lancet Commission of the Future Care and Clinical Research in Autism, recognized that effective autism assessment and care required personalized, stepped care approaches that meets an individual's needs throughout their lives and depends on the family situation and the context in which they live. They also recognize that greater investment is needed to develop and refine practical interventions that can improve the lives of people with autism. The commission also formally introduced the term profound autism to distinguish individuals who have high dependency needs and urge policymakers to help support the unique needs of this group, which represents about 30% of people with autism. Now, the goal of the label is to recognize the uniqueness of these individuals and that their support needs and outcomes are different from others. There is also evidence that the underlying biology of those with profound autism is also different. Almost a few days before the Lancet data came out, the CDC Atom Network released updated prevalence data for 2021, announcing that one in 44 eight-year-old children is diagnosed with autism. Now, this is, this is an increase from the one in 54 number for eight-year-olds reported just in March 2020. They used a slightly different methodology from previous years, but it was validated against the previous methodology and probably didn't account for the increase in prevalence. The new CDC data confirmed that autism prevalence and diagnoses have gone up steadily in the last five years. The CDC information makes it clear that we're getting it better at diagnosing autism and identifying it earlier, which is encouraging because research has consistently shown the value of early intervention. However, more than 50% of children identified had an intellectual disability or a borderline intellectual disability. This cohort of children with profound autism warrants some attention from policymakers and service providers as their needs are dramatically different from those with other forms of autism. Now, while the prevalence numbers went up, the demographics across race, ethnicity, and cognitive ability stayed pretty stable from the last prevalence estimate. This information calls for a better understanding of the nature of the rise of the prevalence beyond just diagnostic practices, including more expanded studies of gene-environment interactions. 
Now, one example would be the differential influence of toxic chemicals on cells with genetic mutations associated with autism, which revealed a susceptibility to toxic chemical exposures with cells with an autism-related variation. Also, a report in pediatrics called to the attention of pediatricians the need to better understand the role of toxic exposures in the causes of autism. Now, those from racially and ethnically diverse backgrounds have long been recognized as being diagnosed later, if at all. There are years and years of CDC data which show that while this trend is improving, it's still problematic in terms of equitable access to services. It also produces another problem that perpetuates the underdiagnosis and lack of access. Not enough families from racially and ethnically diverse communities are included in research, which means most research only applies to white communities, not communities represented in the real world that need help. A few studies this year specifically targeted those from either Hispanic or black and Hispanic families and found that their needs were different or developed tools for their particular culture. However, in a commentary this year, researchers highlighted the need to make sure to engage diverse communities at the beginning of the research question to ensure they have a voice at each step and to possibly adapt a study question to their particular circumstances. Unfortunately, not all of the challenges facing underserved communities are the same. For example, those who are minimally verbal and have intellectual disabilities are also left out of research for logistical reasons, or in many cases, the intellectual and verbal abilities of individuals are not reported at all. Those with intellectual disability are usually recognized more often, but there were only four intervention studies published in 2021 that specifically included a group of people with autism with an intellectual disability. Now, another underserved group is females. While females with ASD have not been typically placed in the underdiagnosed category, they certainly are a group that's been underserved by scientific research. Just like racial and ethnic disparities, because of the four to one difference in prevalence for males to females, autism research studies typically include four times fewer females, which means the findings in males may not be generalizable to females. In fact, in the last year, there's been several studies showing that the challenges faced by autistic females are different from autistic males. One example is a phenomenon called passing as autistic, which is also known as masking. This is where someone with autism tries to hide their symptoms to pass in social situations, and it was found to be elevated in females. Comorbidities like epilepsy have been found to be higher in females, and baseline brain activity in autistic youth is different based on biological sex. Now, while the female brain is always known to be different than the male brain, even in autism, the lack of females included in research has also impaired our understanding of brain differences between males and females with ASD for more personalized support. Because of the disparity in diagnosis between males and females, there are actually very few studies that examine the effects of sex and gender on diagnosis, making consistent findings across sex and gender almost impossible, although it was done this year. What was learned that the striatum and also genes controlling striatal development may play a critical role in autism symptoms in females. Now, this was not identified as an area of interest in males. Research also shows that females have a higher burden of genetic variants of the oxytocin receptor gene, and this affects them differently than males. There's also differential links between brain activity and autism features in males versus females, supporting something called the female protective effect. Now, the female protective effect may be genetic or it might occur through the estrogen pathway. 
Finally, while the entire autism community has a higher than expected rate of gender dysphoria, gender dysphoria seems to affect girls more than boys. Behavioral features are also slightly different, which can complicate a diagnosis. Together, these results demonstrate that scientific findings, including the use of biomarkers for a diagnosis, which are studied in males, may be drastically different than what's relevant for females. So scientists need to ensure that there is enough females recruited into research studies and better understand the difference between males and females so they can ensure that whatever they find out can generalize to care in the community. And of course, the pandemic is still causing problems. Almost two years into the pandemic, study, scientists are still working to understand the long-term effects of people with autism. Studies focused on increases in challenging behaviors and loneliness in autistic youth and adults, and also under underlying health challenges due to prolonged social distancing. And this included multiple waves of lockdowns this year. Additionally, studies showed that families with autism are disproportionately affected by job losses and food insecurity. And while telehealth-based diagnosis and services are becoming more common as a result of social distancing, families of younger children who need direct behavioral supports remain the least satisfied, a trend that was continued from 2020. The challenges associated with the pandemic were not limited to those with a diagnosis. Scientists who dedicate their lives to help those on the spectrum have struggled with some of the same issues that families with autism have, including mental health and childcare challenges. This compounds the problem of developing scientific discoveries and delivering them to the community. Now, with the pandemic came the use of remote and virtual technologies, not just to identify and diagnose autism, but provide supports and services. Now, as the pandemic continues, researchers are studying what works and what doesn't, especially in families who say they found telehealth more accessible and even beneficial. Remote assessments have changed the way how autism is diagnosed, with scientists emphasizing the need for the use of good clinical judgment rather than the reliance on specific instruments. Telehealth assessments have meant that diagnosis is now more accessible to those in remote areas who were traditionally underdiagnosed. And another bright spot is that the pandemic has allowed children to be observed remotely in their home environment, which may significantly enhance the abilities of clinicians to observe early markers of autism. New technologies that enable videotaping via a remote camera for later review by clinicians are also gaining traction. Recently, a company called Cognoa received an FDA marketing authorization for its new videotaping tool, Canvas DX. In addition, Duke University published on a tool that plays different movies and visual seeds on an iPad and allows clinicians to determine the likelihood of a diagnosis by examining where the child looked in the scene. This comes from past research, which has shown that children with autism are more likely to look at objects and less likely to look at social scenes. Now, in both cases, these recordings, together with early standard screening methods, can be used to help facilitate a diagnosis. A 2021 review found these mobile digital technologies to be very promising. But beyond just supporting a diagnosis, mobile technology has been used to improve cognitive and social skills. A recent systematic review indicated that mobile interventions were particularly helpful in targeting practical skills. They can also be used to help predict responses to stressful situations and abnormal sensory arousal. Finally, robots and video games on devices are showing promise in helping kids with autism develop social skills. 
While these technologies may have benefits beyond the pandemic and can alleviate some of the burden to traveling to multiple appointments, they do not replace the need for children to be diagnosed or receive therapy by trained in-person clinicians. Speaking of a diagnosis, is intervention dependent on a diagnosis? A few years ago, scientists in the United Kingdom began studying the possibility of promoting skills in parents as a way to mitigate autism symptoms in infants. By working with parents in their home and promoting social and communication skills through activities like reading and play, autism severity scores improved. Now this year, a group in Australia conducted its own randomized controlled study starting at nine to 12 months, and that's before a diagnosis to be made, to provide support to parents and offer video feedback on supporting language and social development in their infants, again, through play and daily activities. The study showed that support of infant social and communication skills measured at one year later led to a reduction of autism severity scores, with these improvements being maintained long after the end of the intervention period. Factors like caregiver interaction and adjusting the environment to promote learning in these toddlers were key to changing developmental trajectory. New tools are also allowing earlier and earlier detection of markers of ASD, with some evidence that it can be done as early as 12 months of age. These findings represent benefits of decades worth of early detection work and operationalize a methodology for parents to learn themselves to promote social and communication skills in their infants, because they're the ones that are spending the most time with their 9 to 12 month olds. However, the need for earlier detection of diagnosis of autism still remains a priority within the autism research and autism community. This year, researchers identified changes in gray matter, which are cell bodies, and white matter, which are the neuron branches, in children as young as 12 months of age who later go on to be diagnosed with autism. Now, changes in brain activity, while not a diagnostic marker, are seen in infants as young as three months of age and can prove helpful in a diagnosis at six months. In addition, some behavioral signs can also trigger preemptive intervention. Groups led by UC Davis demonstrated both declining gaze to faces and an unusual inspection of objects at nine months, which predicted social engagement at 12 months in those who later went on to receive an autism diagnosis. In addition, vocalizations or intents to communicate were lower in children as young as 12 months. Together, while these things individually are not diagnostic, some of these early markers and signs can facilitate entry into these preemptive interventions, which produce skills in caregivers and infants that change the developmental trajectory. Regarding these things, there's some sort of erroneous perception that parents believe that all of autism is bad and needs to be eliminated. In fact, when they were specifically asked, parents identified characteristics like love, kindness, humor, and humanity that they value and appreciate in their children. So it's not about getting rid of the autism. It's about letting children live the best life possible and helping them communicate. Now, from early diagnosis to the end of life, there's actually been a traditional lack of understanding about what happens to autistic adults as they enter what is called their golden years. This year, Drexel University utilized Medicaid data to examine the risk of dementia in those with autism and found that those with autism were 2.6 times more likely to be diagnosed with dementia compared to the general population. 
Why? Well, we don't know yet, but it has profound impacts on planning for elderly relatives with ASD and developing interventions that may stunt the development of dementia in this population. Now, we're still trying to understand the role of genetics in autism. Traditionally, genetic variation with autism was bucketed as either a rare mutation or a common mutation. Rare mutations on genes typically lead to deleterious effects like seizures or intellectual disability. Sometimes, like in the case of the BRCA gene, they can be fatal. Common mutations are seen in a lot of people, not just those with autism, but the human body can tolerate many different small common mutations with no major effects. However, if the genetic variant is found in an autism risk gene, for example, then it disposes someone to an autism diagnosis. Mutations found in autism risk genes, including those associated with cell adhesion, neuron-glian interactions, and I'll talk about glia cells in a minute, and synapse formation, are most likely the common variants involved in autism. So this year, sequencing of more than 800 people with an autism diagnosis revealed that 27%, the highest number so far, had evidence of a rare genetic mutation. And they were mostly in one of the 102 genes identified last year as being relevant for autism. Presence of a mutation of one of these genes also results in a distinct set of behavioral features early in life that is different than those without a rare mutation. And these things include things like delay at walking and maybe presence of seizures. Interestingly, instead of advancing the traditional rare versus common debate, scientists this year learned that even those who have a rare genetic mutation, there's also a high burden of common variation. So they found that both rare and common genetic risks contribute together to autism susceptibility and that the dual genetic findings may increase the likelihood of a diagnosis. These findings make things more complicated for genetic counselors who actually assess all the factors and communicate the families whether or not a particular variant is causative. In addition, sequencing technologies are revealing more and more genes that are relevant to ASD, but rare. In fact, they may be part of a multifactorial cause of individual cases of autism. Finally, we've learned that common variation not only influences core autism symptoms, but also psychiatric comorbidities. Now, why study these rare genetic syndromes? The use of induced pluripotent stem cells, or what's called iPSCs, to study the brain on a cellular level has so far been focused on rare genetic diseases like DUP15Q syndrome, catnap, and CDKL5 disorder. However, while the genetic targets may be more specific than idiopathic autism, there's also converging mechanisms of disrupted connectivity in the brain that makes these single gene disorders useful in understanding the biology of all of autism. Instead of some shared and some distinct neurobiology across autism with a known genetic cause, there's overlap in the basic neurobiology in terms of cortical thickness and G-protein coupled, coupled receptors. Some of these rare genetic syndromes have been responsive to targeted gene therapy, and this could open up the door for them to be used in idiopathic autism if they've been proven safe and effective in large group of people with neurodevelopmental disorders. Now, remember I talked about neural glial interactions? Well, those glial cells may play a bigger role than we thought. One type of brain cell that's experiencing a renewed interest is glial cells. 
particularly with regard to sex differences in autism. Now, glial cells are found in the brain, but they're not the cells that connect with each other, and they're not the cells that send those electrical signals down the road one after the other to communicate across the brain. Rather, they provide insulation to those cells, and they also provide support. They were not thought to be communication cells, and so they weren't really considered critical for study. But recent evidence has shown that they may be different subtypes of autism defined by the upregulation of genes that control these glial cells. Gene expression in these microglia may also contribute to the differences in brain structure. In addition, the direct study of brain tissue has shown that certain layers of the cortex, astrocytes to be exact, are decreased. Taken together, the dysregulation of these glial cells may actually contribute to different cell processes, brain structure, functional changes, and psychiatric syndromes associated with autism. So the big question is, how can we help to improve outcomes of those with autism? Now, new research this year focused on improving outcomes. First, we learned that the presence of a brother or a sister not on the spectrum improves adaptive behavior across the lifespan for those with an autism diagnosis. On the other hand, prenatal stress early in life and adverse events can make outcomes worse in people with autism. Research shows that, especially during the early years, parents and caregivers play a critical and life-changing role in their child's development. I talked about pre-symptomatic interventions, but there's also interventions after a diagnosis is made called naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions called NDBIs. These are child-led and utilize behavioral principles delivered at home and are considered to be the most helpful for young children. And now they can be delivered via telehealth. One good thing to come out of the pandemic is the availability of remote access to video trainings, including but not limited to things like the Autism Navigator and the Baby Navigator, which help parents identify early signs and deliver interventions to their young children from home. The literature on the efficacy of these naturalistic developmental behavioral intervention keeps growing from year to year. However, not everyone has access to these interventions or even expert clinicians. To address disparities seen across the world and across different comorbidities and other individualized things like family factors, the Lancet Commission report called for a stepped care and personalized health model for interventions. This includes provisions not just for individual and family factors, but also accessibility and cost. The recommendations on how different groups approach care are essential to obtain a more specialized approach to helping families and individuals on the spectrum lead happy, healthy, and successful lives. And it can be done on where the person is, whether that's in a different country or from a different socioeconomic status. Unfortunately, some promising therapeutics like oxytocin failed to meet the cut, so to speak, of significantly helping those with autism. Also, other organ systems besides just the brain, including the gastrointestinal system, continue to be investigated to help alleviate these co-occurring medical conditions. Now, many families have turned to things like probiotics to help things like constipation and diarrhea. However, new evidence suggests that the microbiome, which is what the probiotics works on, it's like the community of cells living in your intestines, this is actually more influenced by diet than autism itself, calling into question the validity of the probiotic use for GI symptoms. Sadly, the autism community lost three scientists this year who made enormous contributions to the field and changed the way people think about autism. Sir Michael Rudder, known as the father of child psychiatry, 
who is a professor at the Institute of Psychiatry at King's College London, who's probably one of the most influential psychiatric scientists of the past 50 years. He was one of the first researchers to study autism, publishing one of the first studies of autistic twins in 1977. He helped dispel the myth that parenting styles was what caused an autism diagnosis, and he brought scientific rigor to understanding autism. You can see this through his work in developing the two gold standard tools for diagnosis, the ADIR and the ADOS. His commitment to helping children and families was not limited to autism. He helped families with a number of psychiatric conditions and behavioral issues. Li Ching Li, who served as the Associate Director of Global Autism at the Wendy Clagg Center of Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, also passed away this year. She was one of the reasons why autism is recognized as a global condition. She focused her research on identifying and helping families with autism across the world, calling it a human rights issue when the needs of families in under-resourced countries were ignored. She also worked tirelessly to understand autism here in the United States, working closely with the CDC to understand who and where people were being diagnosed and how they could be helped. Beyond being an amazing scientist, her students have called her an amazing friend, a devoted mentor and teacher who went above and beyond to help her students be successful, all the while helping families on the spectrum. Finally, George Wagner of Rutgers University was one of the first behavioral neuroscientists to, draw, to develop a behavioral model of autism at a time when scientists were trying to understand how to recapitulate the features and model systems. The core features of the models he utilized, including delay of skill development, plateauing of skills, and possible regression of skills, helped fundamentally change the field of animal models of autism. Many of his students, including me, went on to help families with autism following his training. All three of these amazing scientists will be remembered not just for their contributions to science, but for their training of early career researchers who continue to make an impact. Now I do have a last word. Over the last 40 years, autism has moved from a categorical yes-no diagnosis to a dimensional diagnosis, taking into account the complexity and differences of features across the lifespan. While there may be core features of ASD that are common, just like everybody else, people with autism are different and they need to be recognized as such. While this summary captured what happened in 2021, we urge you to read more about how the science has changed the way families with autism have been perceived, treated, and helped over the past 40 years. The Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders published a series that you can look at on their website, and Dr. Giacomo Vivanti shared his perspective on the November 14th ASF podcast. In fact, one of the best ways to keep up with changes is to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts if you haven't already. I want to take an opportunity to thank each and every one of you who listened to this podcast either today or throughout the year. I want you to share your ideas, your perspectives, your suggestions, your criticisms with me by contacting me at A Halliday, H A L L A D A Y, at autismsciencefoundation.org. This will be the last podcast of 2021, and I hope that we all have a better 2022. Happy holidays and talk to you next year.